If you want to turn to 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 1. Second Peter 3, verse 1. Uh, why don't we stand and read this together? So beginning in chapter 3, that's what Peter says. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring you up by your sincere mind, by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, falling after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Let's pray. Lord, we have four short verses, but as we've learned to uh, understand uh, at Genesis House, um, you have a lot to say in a, in a few words. Uh, and we are grateful for that, that we don't have to be in a rush to go through your scriptures. We can just take it small bites at a time and ingest it properly. And uh, we look forward to the way your Spirit's going to guide us into truth. And uh, I just pray that um, we would understand you differently uh, after we walk away from here today. Not just for head knowledge, but that it would transform our lives and it would become applicable on the streets. And the way we live our lives and our families. So we look forward to our time together. Uh, in your holy name, amen. Can you hear me okay through the speaker and everything? Okay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like when Sudfeld said to me at my wedding, uh, he goes, Andrew, repeat after me. And I said, after me. And he just, I threw him completely off. <laughs> and then he had to get back into like pre uh, wedding mode. <laughs> so. Alright, well it's great to be back with you all again uh, since my vacation. Um, it's been a while since we preached from 2 Peter, so let me remind you of where we left off so that we know what direction uh, we are heading in this morning. As you notice from the reading this morning, we started a new chapter in chapter 3. Um, the last uh, five sermons, uh, prior to this we've been in chapter 2. And this was looking at the characteristics of the false teachers that threatened the churches in Peter's days of ministry. And if you remember, there were quite a few. Let me just highlight five quickly of what these men were like. Uh, first, their target audience was within the household of God. They were, um, their primary ministry was in the church fold. They were not outside the church and their desire was to corrupt it. And that was quite interesting to think that they were in-house and not, and not outside on the streets. Um, the second characteristic of these men was that the manner in which they introduced their her heretical teaching uh, they did it subtly, they introduced it secretly. So they weren't overt in the way they came in, they didn't sort of walk in your congregation and start just yelling from the front or from the, from the pews that uh, their, their, uh, their heresy, it was a slow uh, weaving into the congregation and they made their way through the ranks that way. Uh, third, they were arrogant men though, uh, they despised authority, uh, they, they, they denied the lordship of Jesus, that was one way it was shown. Another one was they they uh, slandered supernatural beings. Um, 
we talk a lot about what that looked like. You can listen to that sermon if you uh, want to hear more. Uh, they were also very conceited and prideful, just in general. Uh, fourth, they were known for their greed, so there was no spiritual concern for the church. They were in it just for the money. And fifthly, they promoted a life of immorality. They enticed people to sin. But one key characteristic that's important for our sermons that we're going to look at over the next two to three weeks is their theology regarding the second coming of Christ. Um, Peter spends from verse 1 in chapter 3 to the end of this letter dealing with their denial of the return of Jesus. And we can see this in verse 3 and 4. Uh, just look at 3 and 4 with me. He says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So a big part of this false teacher's message, if you were part of their church community back then, was to make fun of and slander any Christian who believed that Jesus was coming back. And they would make fun of you for that. Uh, but to deny this reality, remember, is extremely important. Because to deny the second coming is actually to deny that God is a judge. We know from scripture that uh, the, the second coming of Jesus and the, and the judgment of people for sin is, is linked together. They're, they're one and the same. But of course, these false teachers then, by promoting that he was not coming back, were also denying the fact that he was not going to judge either. Now, I suggest this is why they could so freely teach others to embrace an immoral lifestyle as an, as an expression of being in relationship with God. I mean, we see this all through the letter. It, even in verse 3, it says that they followed after their own lusts. Well, again, you can do so if you don't believe God is judged and he's not coming back. Um, Peter's uh, message, though, of course, is that nothing was farther than the truth. Uh, this, is, this, couldn't be, this is a complete lie. And so he had wanted to uh, combat sin and combat this teaching. And so the way he did it was to come up with a battle plan to fight against this heretical teaching that God was not going to judge sin and that he was not coming back. And so he had to come up with some kind of way of dealing with this issue. So the first thing he does in this passage, and this is all we're going to handle today is this one thing he does, is he tells the Christians then, as he does us today, to remember the reliability of the truth of God's word. So you have false teachers out there promoting all sorts of things. Battle plan number one, remember that God's truth is completely reliable and completely trustworthy. And I would even say, I would even substitute the word scripture. Scripture is completely trustworthy. Pick this up in verse 1 and 2. He says, This is the second letter I'm writing you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, the commandment of Lord Jesus, our Savior, and your spoken apostles. So this Peter calls them to remind to, to remember these things, remember these things two times. You know, I'm, I'm calling your sincere mind to in a way of reminder, and you should remember the words spoken by these three sources. Now, if I were to ask you, uh, what does it mean to remember something? You'd be right if you said, well, to remember something is to recall something previously learned. To go back into your mental piggy bank, so to speak, where you put a fact in there or a snippet of truth and then, or a memory, and then you pull out that from the piggy bank uh, that's something that once was deposited. So you pull it out for its use. 
Now, no doubt Peter had this in mind in terms of remembering tr truth. It's like a mental exercise. But based on the context of the letter, I would suggest that his call to remember here is more than just a mental exercise. I like what one of my commentaries said. He says, the, the, the remembrance Peter is asking of is a dynamic process of applying God's truth to new situations and problems that confronts the believer's life. I think he nails it on the head there. In other words, what he's saying is, this is a remembering for the purpose of living out and applying truth to one's life. This is a remembering that affects the way one is going to express himself as Christian and live from this day forward. And again, here's why. Because the false teachers have come into the church and are introducing destructive heresies. But they're not just introducing them so that you would increase your IQ from their teaching or gain more knowledge. It was so that you would embrace their teaching and then live out their new teaching in, in your own life as a follower of Jesus. And this is why Peter's so concerned. In chapter 2, verse two, 2, he says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. The issue isn't just what they're teaching, it's that they will, they will be duped by it and then live in accordance with the new teaching. And Peter doesn't want them following this new thing, or this new heretical teaching. So again, um, it's important to remember why Peter tells them to remember. It has to do with how they're going to live out their lives. And so when they recall the truth, it's to help combat the false teaching that's there. And again, this is important because the goal of all Christian life is a transformed life. All truth we to remember is the, for the purpose of living it out. So being a Christian is not just about being forgiven. That's not, what this, that's not all it's about. It's through a relationship with Christ that one's life will be changed to look more like Him. And you remember the verse in 829, Romans 8.29? It's a famous passage on predestination. But if you look closely what the predestination is for, it's very interesting. It says that you are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So, it's not a predestination to heaven or hell. It's a predestination to be conformed to the image of God. That's what we've been created for. God is predestined before we were born, before we lived, that we would be matured to look more like Jesus. So salvation is more about, for, not just about forgiveness, it's about being transformed. And it's funny because me and Roger, I don't know if you remember this, Roger, when I was at your garage the other day, we're having a conversation, you just said something like in passing, and I thought it was perfect for the sermon. Um, we were talking about why people would go, choose to go to certain churches and why they would go to A, B, C, and D. And, um, <clears throat> and then we talked about the importance of like, us growing in our faith. And then you just sarcastically said, yeah, like, why would anyone want to come to Genesis House? Because then you'd have to change. Right? I mean, you said that. I was like, yeah, that's totally true. Like, not, the, not that we're the only church that promotes a transformed life. Many, there's a few that are out there that do. But we're just one of few that say, hey, it's not enough just to come as you are. You have to like you have to like progress beyond that. So again, uh, the goal is to transform life, and this is the kind of remembering that Peter has in mind here. But Peter lists three sources of truth to remember. Notice what he lists here: first, the words spoken by the holy prophets; the second, the commandment of the Lord; and third, the apostles. So Peter's force, first source is the, is, the, is the prophets. This is not New Testament prophets. This will be Old Testament prophets based in their context. Now remember in chapter 1 
how the process of how God communicated truth to the prophets. In verse 1, chapter 1, verse 20, he says this, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoken from God. So we did a sermon on that, and the way God would communicate truth to prophets was through dreams, visions, and audible voices. Those were three, three ways he'd speak to them. And the key marker of a prophet was what? Their word would never fail to come true. It would come true 100% of the time. It wasn't a 90-10, 60-40. It was 100% or nothing. That was what a true prophet was. So Peter's drawing the Christians then, as well as us, back to the reliability and trustworthy of Old Testament prophetic scriptures. Now remember, the false teachers denied the second coming of pending judgment. That was their claim. But the prophets made predictions all through scripture that came true even in Jesus' time. Like the kingdoms that were to come in Babylon, or the prophecies of where Jesus was going to be born. All those things came true in Peter's time. So the prophets had already proven a great 100% track record with their predictions and what came true. But the prophets also spoke about the pending judgment to come, the second coming. So therefore, if God's been faithful to the prophets already, he, of course he's going to be faithful regarding the return of Christ in the future. And he's saying, you go back to the Old Testament prophets to remember this. Think, I'll, think, I'll, I'll show you two. Isaiah 24. The earth is broken up, the earth is split asunder, the earth is violently shaken. In the day the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. So he's going to judge the spiritual realm and the physical realm. The moon will be dismayed, the sun will be ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. This is a physical kingdom in which Jesus is going to rule again in Jerusalem. How about Micah 1? Uh, Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place, which will be heaven. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. So again, we see this, uh, this, uh, these prophetic messages about the second coming and the judgment to, go, to come in the future. And so Peter's drawing uh, us back to Old Testament prophetic reliability regarding the judgment and the second coming of the Lord. Peter's second source of truth are the words of Jesus. He talks about the Lord and Savior. Um, Peter, for, of course, can refer to the Lord because he heard him firsthand. He was with him for three years in ministry. Now, not only did he learn how to live as a follower of Christ, he learned about his return and second coming and the following judgment. Um, we can see this in Matthew 24 and 25. The disciples are sitting around the Mount of Olives looking at the temple and they're amazed at how beautiful it is. And Jesus, in those two chapters, talks about how the end is going to come and the temple is going to be destroyed and what the future events are going to look like. But specifically in Matthew 16, 27, uh, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels. So there's the second coming. And then will repay every man according to his deeds. There's the judgment. So the disciples have know about this, and so they, they want the, the, us, as well as the readers back then, or listeners, to remember the Lord's commandments regarding these issues. And the third source, of course, is the apostles. This would be men like himself, as well as the original 11. Uh, that was, uh, and then later on, Matthias got chosen to replace Judas, and then Paul. So if Jesus was the originator of truth, the apostles were the transmitters of truth. 
Now this is really cool stuff. Uh, I never knew this. I have to thank uh, John MacArthur and his commentary uh, for these, these, these uh, comments. But he, he said this regarding the apostles' teaching on the second coming and judgment. 25 of the 27 books in the New Testament speak about the Lord's return. 25 of the 27 speak about his return and judgment. Only two that don't are 3 John and Philemon. But here's what's even crazier. 260 chapters make up the New Testament with 300 references to the second coming and judgment of the Lord. So when the apostles, and the apostles wrote the majority of the New Testament. The majority of the books in the Bible are from them. So when you think 25 of the 27 mention it, and two, there's 300 references, and, the, and, then, and then, then Peter says, remember the teaching of the apostles that was passed down from the Lord? He means it. Because they, these letters were now circulating through the, um, through the kingdom as they've been written. And uh, churches are getting a hold of them. And the apostles' teaching is full of the Lord's return. But here's the important application for us. It's clear from the statement that Peter makes that all sources of truth here that he mentions all have, are equal in authority. So I like to think of it like a triangle. If you put the holy prophets at the top and Jesus here and then the apostles on the third corner, no matter which way you turn the triangle, in terms of reliability of truth, they're all on the same playing field. Whether you listen to the apostles or Jesus or the prophets, they're all of equal in authority. Now why is that important for us? Because not, that's hardly anybody with, well, any, actually people outside the Christian community don't believe that. I'll give you an example. Jesus, the Jews believe that the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Micah are, are trustworthy. But they discard Jesus' Uh, teaching, because he was a false messiah, and they definitely don't trust the apostles. So in Judaism, they kick out Jesus and the apostles and accept one of the prophets. Uh, this is true of the Muslims as well. I was listening to Nabil Qureshi's audio book that he wrote about uh, his, uh, his testimony of faith. He says that the Muslims absolutely detest Paul's teaching. They test him. They test him more than anybody else. And the reason is is they believe that he corrupted God's original message, which was Islam, and that Christianity that we have today is purely comes from Paul's teaching. So when you're dealing with a Muslim as a Christian, they understand you in this way. Your message comes from Paul. That was not God's original intent, and, that's, and so therefore, if you argue about the legitimacy of Paul, they, they, or, or you quote Paul, they just turn their a deaf ear to you. Very interesting. Because we don't look at it that way. We think our teaching comes from the prophets and from Jesus. <laughs> so again, this is very important application-wise uh, in how you, how you view this. Because Peter's putting them all on the same playing field. All right. So here's what I was thinking. I'm going to take this sermon in a different direction. Gone through those four verses pretty quick. You might say, well, Andrew, it's easy for people 2,000 years ago in the churches back then to accept Peter's comments because Jesus had only lived 20 years prior to these letters being written. Secondly, the apostles, for him to say, uh, believe me, it's easy because Peter lives in that time in their existence. They can actually physically see him and meet him and have a conversation. So they can't deny his existence. So they're not going to deny that when Jesus has only been dead 20 years, A, he didn't exist. B, that the prophetic scriptures weren't reliable. 
and, uh, and uh, the apostles weren't, didn't have authority. That was a non-issue for them back in those days. We are 2,000 years removed, and what are some of the arguments you get? You can't trust the Bible. It was written 2,000 years ago. It's like playing telephone. It gets passed down and everything gets lost. I don't believe Jesus existed. I don't believe Peter existed. Uh, so the argument, so really it's hard for us to sort of argue, uh, not argue, but like discuss like this issue with the same sort of um, confidence as maybe the churches back then could have done so. So what I wanted to do was give you, finish the sermon with four reasons why we can trust the Bible being completely trustworthy and tell, show you that they are not corrupted, that they are original, and that this is, um, that you can, they are completely reliable, and that the teaching that Peter gave them, we can completely accept for ourselves as well. And these would be great conversation pieces with non-believers who discredit the scriptures. And one of the things that we have to do is know how to defend our faith. So this is very much an apologetics type 15-20 minutes of sermon coming up and this is going to help you gain trust in the scriptures so that you can defend your own faith. So this acronym comes from Hank Anagraph, so I thank him for this, and it's the word MAPS. Why can we trust the Bible? Why can we remember the words spoken before the holy prophets, the commandments of the Lords and the apostles and know that we legitimately have the correct understanding of faith? First, manuscript evidence. Two, archaeology. Three, prophecy. And four, synergy. First, the manuscripts. There's no historical document in the world that compares to the Bible in terms of quantity of manuscript evidence. The number of manuscripts and fragments from the Old Testament is over 14,000. The amount for the New Testament is over 5,000. So we have 20,000 fragments or documents um, supporting the Old Testament. The second, second biggest source in the world of ancient literature, the second biggest source is Homer's Iliad, which is the equivalent of the Greek Bible. It would be the equivalent of our Bible, but for the Greeks. Okay? They have fewer than 650 copies today. So we've got 14,000 Old Testament, 5,000 New Testament, second biggest ancient literature in the world, 650 Homer's Iliad, the Greek Bible. Plato's writing of the Republic, seven copies in existence today. Caesar's writings about the Gaelic Wars, Gallic Wars, ten copies. Here's why I bring this up. Modern scholars have no problem accepting the authenticity of these other works. They believe Homer's Iliad to be true, Plato's writings to be true, Caesar's Gallic to be true, and historically accurate. Yet, we've got seven copies to 650 versus 19,000 in the scriptures. Just in sheer numbers alone, it's an absolute uh, no-brainer in terms of evidence, supporting evidence. Someone might say to you, yeah, but they're not originals. They're copies. They're copies, Andrew. So you can't trust it because it can get corrupted in between times. Fair enough, good point. But that's not only the Bible's issues. Every ancient literature, literature has the same problem. Every single one. I'm gonna compare the Bible to the last three sources. Homer's Iliad was written in 800 BC, original copy. The first, or original, uh, yeah, original um, document. 
The first copy we have comes from the 2nd and 3rd century. So 800 BC to the 2nd century is a thousand year gap between original and copy. So you want to talk about time for corruption? <laughs> thousand years. Plato's writing of the Republic, written around 380 BC. Earliest copy we have is 900 AD, a 1300 year gap. Caesar's Gallic Wars, written around 100, between 144 BC. Time between original copies we have today is also about a thousand years. Why do I bring this up? Secular historians have no problem accepting these as being true. The New Testament was written between 50 and 100 AD. We have copies, our earliest copies commence within two generations of the original. 150, 200 years. So we're dealing with a thousand years for the closest one, the New Testament's 200 years at, at, at most. Again, super important because we don't deny the, the accuracy or the reliability of these other scriptures, and yet we're dealing with five times to six times longer from original to copies. Now I want to, I was tempted to go a lot on this, but I won't. I want to speak to the eyewitness credibility in those cultures. You hear this all the time. You can't trust the Bible because uh, it was written down, even if it was copies. How do you know that there's too much time between the original event and them writing it down for it to be trustworthy? It's like playing telephone. Well, so, so yeah, so the eyewitness thing is important. You want to be credible in that way. So obviously the shorter the time between written and copied, or written down is, or, or sorry, the original event and the copy or the, or the original document has to be minimal for it to be trustworthy. Okay? Well, again, we can see from these, this original argument that the, from the original stuff going on to the copies was, was huge in terms of years. But one of the, one of the biggest uh, arguments would be something like this. Uh, Andrew, um, these guys, even if they written, wrote it in 50, 50 AD uh, or 100 AD, there, that's still 70 years, or you know, 30 to 70 years, like you know, beyond uh, when Jesus actually lived, right? Because if Jesus was around in 30 A.D. and John was say written in 90 A.D., that's 60 years spread. So you can't trust 60 years; it can get lost. Let me give you a hint on that. I'll ask you a legitimate question: Do you guys know people in who fought in World War II? Anybody know grandpa, relative, anybody that like, knows somebody or, or anyone? Yeah, you must have relatives or family that fought in the war, right? Or met someone or heard someone speak. 1945 to 2019, let's just say 2020, that's 75 years. 75 years. Would you, if you were listening to somebody who was 90 years old talking about the war today, would you actually say, put up your hand and go, I can't trust anything you're saying, you're making it all up? That was 75 years ago. Would you dare even say that publicly to a guy who's speaking about his life in the war? Never would. 75 years removed from the event, if he wrote a biography today, you'd completely trust him because he was an eyewitness who experienced those things. <coughs> and what's the argument in Christianity? Well, it was too far between eyewitness and written down. 70 years, 50 years, you can't trust it. Really? You trust a guy in the war, why wouldn't you trust someone who was there to witness it through the scriptures? I want to speak to the reliability of the Old Testament. Even if you don't take anything I said into consideration, 
the, the one thing that squashes the Old Testament or the Old Testament arguments about not being reliable is the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Found in 1947, they contain thousands of fragments and caves at Qumran, and they're all papyrus scrolls dating from 250 BC to 68 AD, which is 300 years. So they include manuscripts from, and fragments from every book of the Bible and the Old Testament, except the book of Esther, and they have the complete book of Isaiah. They're written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And when they were analyzed and compared to the oldest copy that we had at the time, which was a thousand years later, there was virtually no difference. The only differences were inscribal errors, but not theological principles, truths, or, or, or anything else. It was just scribal errors. What's important about that is, here we have a text a thousand, only about a thousand, our oldest text was around a thousand AD. When the Qumran scrolls were found, that pushed back the date another extra thousand years. So we have things written from 250 BC compared to the text that we have, which was a thousand years ago, and they're identical. And the Bible we have today is still the identical writing. So there's been no change in the Old Testament from the Qumran scrolls written in 250 BC to the Old Testament we have today. 2,000 years, uncorrupted, completely reliable, even though it's been copied. How about the New Testament? Well, I'd encourage you to read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He gives a lot of evidence for the New Testament. And I'm just going to give you one thing to consider. If you want to prove that Jesus was around and Peter was around and guys like that, it would probably be important to use secular sources that don't care about Christianity to support your evidence. Because someone might say, you have an agenda, you're a Christian, you want to promote the fact that Jesus lived. Okay, I'll use historical secular sources that don't give a rip about Jesus. And they all confirm names, dates, events, and places found in the New Testament with no contradiction. I'll give you two. This is a guy by the name of Tacitus. He was a Roman, uh, Roman uh, fellow, historian. This is what he says. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, which is Christ, Jesus, from whom the name has its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome. See the massive statements there? He, the source that Christians came from is a guy named Jesus. He suffered the crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, under the reign of Tiberius, so it dates him. Right? And it's a most, I think the most mischievous superstition, I think, is referring to the resurrection or the death and resurrection, but it's hard to know. But then he says it broke out in Judea and then in Rome. And what did the apostles say? We can see that it spread, the gospel spread all the way to the Roman, Roman Empire. Josephus, another fellow written at, uh, who was around, who experienced, uh, well, actually, Josephus lived before 108 AD. A Jewish historian wrote an autobiography about the Jewish-Roman War. And he also wrote a book called The Antiquities. And in The Antiquities, he described the death of James, the brother of Jesus. And then he goes on in this book to also speak about Jesus Christ. And in very explicit details about his miracle working and all sorts of things. It's brilliant. 
So we can trust the Old and New Testament. They're not corrupted. And they continue on. How about archaeology? Over and over, the Bible affirms the reliability... Oh, sorry. The archaeology affirms the reliability of the Bible. Pontius Pilate. When I was there in Israel, I was told that Pontius Pilate uh, was never believed to be a real person. He was fictitious. Mind you, these sources I just showed you show that he wasn't. But regardless, critics don't look into material like that often. But Pontius Pilate um, was said never to exist. So we're in Israel at Caesarea, and a story is told of uh, these guys were cold. They were doing an archaeological dig in the 1950s. They got cold. They wanted to make a fire, but it was so windy because the sea's right there, it's the, uh, it's the, the um, Mediterranean Sea. So they started overturning stones to make a wall to have a fire behind it. When they overturned a stone, they saw an inscription. And this is what the inscription, here's the picture of the stone. And the inscription says, the Tiberius, which Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, dedicated. Pontius Pilate dedicated a stone to Caesar Tiberius. And uh, this is the stone that he erected right in Caesarea, and they found it right there. King David was said to never exist. Critics said that there's no record of him recorded outside of the Bible, quote-unquote. In 1993, a broken asphalt inscription was found in northern Israel at Tel Dan, and the inscription claims that an Assyrian king killed two kings from the house of David. Here's the inscription. You can't read it, it's so far away. But at the top is the Aramaic inscription. At the second paragraph is uh, the Israelis' uh, archaeologist um, depicting of where it occurred in the Bible, and below is word for word the inscription. Uh, Jeroboam was said not to, or sorry, Jeroboam in the tribe of Dan, from the tribe of Dan. Um, First King tells us about a split of Israel. There was a ten tribes in the north and two in the south. Jeroboam led the north. First Kings 12 tells us that he built a place of worship in Dan and erected two golden calves. All right, so you go to Israel and here's, here is Tel Dan. They uncovered the city. Uh, they've made a metal replica of what the altar would have looked like. Okay, and here's, um, here's Peter, this thing, here's, what's wrong with this thing? <laughs> here's Peter, uh, you saw last week preaching, walking up the steps at the temple, up to, up to the altar, and there's Dan Jansen, of course, watching him. The significance of this is that in First Kings, it describes Jeroboam being an idolatrous pagan worshiper of, the, of Baal, of Baal. These steps indicate that this was an idolatrous practice by having steps. Do you remember what God commanded the ramp to look like going into, up to the altar? It was to be a ramp. There was to be no steps. Because when you think of what a priest wore, a long garment. When you take a step, what happens? Your garment lifts up and it shows your ankle, shows your skin. It's a sign, it's a sign of nakedness. Or, and it actually, it's actually an embrace of homosexuality. That's what that's believed. So, Jeroboam, what does he do? At the altar they discover, he makes steps. Why? Because it's part of, he's not, he's basically saying, screw you to God. We're embracing immoral lifestyles. We don't care and we're not going to build a ramp. We're just going to build and show our nakedness every time we walk up these steps. <laughs> so it's, inten- it's incredible when you, get, when you see places like this. And archaeology, thousands and thousands of stories of confirming events in the Bible. 1 Kings 12 happened like 3,000 years ago, somewhere around there. 
And the Bible today says Dan existed, Jeroboam did this, and archaeology pulls this up. You compare it to other cults, they can't find archaeologically any of the stuff that they claim. Third prophecy. It'll be very brief here, but an often you, argument you'll often hear, and the reason the Bible is so accurate in predicting the future is because the prophecies were written after the events occurred. And people just cleverly concocted this and pulled the wool over your eyes by writing these things down later and then put the Bible together. The Dead Sea Scrolls ultimately destroy that. They were discovered with writings from 250 BC concerning the birthplace of Jesus, how he was going to die, um, the, the, the dividing of his clothes, the, the shoulders gambling for his clothes, how all these things, the burial among the rich. These, are, these prophecies about Micah and Isaiah and things like that are written 250 BC in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Jesus is born 300 years later. So to say that they're written after the Dead Sea Scrolls completely destroy any evidence of that being true. And finally, uh, synergy. I'll finish with this. The Bible was written over 1,500 years ago by over, over sorry, over a, fifth, a span of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors in three different languages on hundreds of different subjects. And yet there's one consistent theme that's non-contradictory throughout the whole scriptures. God's redemption of humankind through Jesus Christ. Every single book highlights that. Genesis highlights that. And God's curse over Satan all the way to Revelation. These guys live 1,500 years apart and they all have the same message. That's incredible. So the Bible is unprecedented compared to ancient literature in terms of being trustworthy. So, when Peter says to you, I want to stir you up, uh, I want to stir you up and get your sincere mind acting, <laughs> that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and the Savior spoken by your apostles, you can believe him at his word. No ancient document and no other religion can back up their, their, um, their faith with those four points. Manuscript evidence, archaeology, prophecy, and synergy. So lessons, just two today. First of all, is we, can conf we have confidence in the reliability of the Bible as, God's, as God has preserved His Word down through the centuries, protecting it from extinction and guarding it against significant error. Second, the purpose for growing in our knowledge of the Scriptures is ultimately to transform the way we live. Right? Remember, remember the holy words in the prophets. Why? Because you have false teachers telling you to live according, a contradictory to what Jesus and the apostles said, and the prophets for that matter. He's like, I want you to remember so that it ultimately impacts the way you move forward. As a right way to express your life as a Christian person. Alright, so lots of information in part two of that sermon there, and um, probably impossible to write it all down but I'd be interested and curious in uh, your thoughts.